Have you ever found yourself wanting to be a Christian, but found the idea of living a life for Christ too complicated? Maybe you thought there would be too many laws to follow, and you'd do a bad job. This is Christ is the Answer, the weekly radio broadcast of the Seafew Full Gospel Church in beautiful Back Bay, New Brunswick. And I'm your host today, Robin Monks. As Christians, we can also lose sight of what it means to serve God. We can let ourselves become so burdened down that we feel like we're not doing enough for God. It's easy, even if you've been serving Christ all of your life, to feel like you're doing it badly. If anything I just said resonated with you, I believe you'll find her sermon this morning can change your perspective. Everything about serving Christ can be boiled down to two straightforward things. To share what those two things are, here's Pastor Randy Crozier. All right, praise God. If you would turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and this morning we're talking about loving God and loving people. You know, loving God and, and loving people, of course, uh, comes from Matthew chapter 22, and it, you can find it in other Gospels as well, but we're looking at Matthew 22, 36 through 40 this morning. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you, you, you read in, the, in the, uh, the wider context, what you discover is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees in this instance, are really ticked off. They're really upset. Uh, about uh, some things that Jesus had said and done. And it says in that same chapter that they uh, gathered together and they decided that they were going to try and entangle Christ in his words. I think that's from the NIV, entangle Christ in his words. So from that point forward, you begin uh, to see them posing a series of questions to Christ. The idea being that these questions, in their hope, would, would kind of trip him up, that he would say something that would impugn him in some way, that it would either cause him to step into what they regarded as heresy, or that would alienate significant segments of the population that were at that point in time pretty enthused uh, about Christ. So eventually it says that uh, they send a lawyer to him. And uh, the lawyer comes with this question, and, and, and he says, you know, what is the, the greatest of the commandments? And I've shared with you before that this was a perpetual debate among the Jews. The rabbis had identified 613 specific laws in the five books of Moses, you know, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they were constantly debating which among those laws was foremost. And so they thought, well, if we ask him this question then invariably he's going to offend somebody, right? you got 613 laws and all kinds of debate and endless disagreement about which is the greatest of those, these laws. And so if we ask him this question, he's going to offend someone. So they thought they really had it in the bag here. This was their big gun. This was their missile that they were dragging out to bring down Christ. As he had done on all the previous occasions, he beats them at their own game. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your mind. This is the first commandment. This is the greatest commandment. Now what he did there is every morning an orthodox or practicing or believing Jew repeats to himself something that's called the Shema. And along with several other passages, actually two other passages, it involves the repetition every day of this statement. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, everything that you've got. You become fully invested in loving Him. If every Jew is saying it every morning, and then also every evening, 
Well, you know, he's, he's definitely targeted something that they, they can't be too critical of. But that's not where it ends. He said, this is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So two things coupled together, not separated. You don't get to choose between these things and say, well, you know, I'm going to invest myself in one and not the other. Or I'm going to make myself busy at loving God, but I'm not going to love my neighbor. Because by bringing them together, what Jesus fundamentally or essentially does is, is he says that you really cannot love God if you don't love your neighbor. And you really can't love your neighbor if you don't know how to love God. But he didn't stop there. And this was the real kicker. He says, so number one, you need to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Then you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, they were always debating. Which commandment is the greatest commandment? Of 613 different commandments, which is the greatest? And then he says this, and on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So now there are uh, 611 that he hasn't addressed, and, and they're thinking, oh, well, you know, he's elevated two over the others. And then he says, you know what? The truth is, all of the remainder, 600-plus commandments, are just folded into these two things. And he beats them at their own game. And they can't come back at him. And the Bible says that they just went away. Or actually, it says they did, said nothing. He, he, he stilled... Uh, their mouths. He closed their mouths. So, this morning, I want to talk to you about loving God and about loving people and what it all has to do, all of this together. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you'd open your word to our hearts and cause us to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, open our understanding to your truth and cause us, Lord, to, to Lord, move forward in our faith in you, Lord, and to move forward as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every person who has ever lived in the past and every person who is currently alive on this planet and every person who will live going into the future, you see, uh, all of them are engaged in uh, an intense search for happiness. Everybody wants happiness. Now, we may describe it variously, and use all kinds of language and terminology, but we are perpetually and desperately seeking the person, the place, or the thing that will satisfy the desires of our heart and to quiet the cravings of our souls. You know, there are lots of things that make us distinct as human beings. You know, our ethnicity and our size and our hair color and all kinds of languages that we speak and, and the cultural traditions. So here we are, you know, as human beings, and this one thing we definitely have in common, in spite of all of our distinctiveness, we yearn for the inner cravings, the deep, deep longings and the yearnings of our soul to be addressed. We yearn to have satisfaction and contentment and peace and joy. We yearn to have happiness. And that happens everywhere on the globe. You know, as children, we thought that, you know, maybe that bag of chips that you nagged your mother for, if I could just have that bag of chips, you know, man, I'm going to be happy, you know. You know, or, or it was, you know, that uh, video game or the bicycle or that doll at Christmas time. If I could just have that doll, I would be happy. And then, of course, what happens? You get it, and it doesn't make a difference, really. 
I can't remember, or I can't tell you how often I'm thinking that if I could, boys, if mom and dad would just give me that for Christmas, wow, it's going to be so great. And in hindsight, looking back on it, and 20 minutes after I got it, my life was no different. The measure of my contentment or my joy uh, was unchanged. You know, then, you know, as teenagers, you know, we think that satisfaction is going to come from any number of things. Or maybe it's going to come from, you know, athletic achievement or accomplishment or, you know, popularity. Maybe a new car or a guy or a girl. Or maybe we think it's going to come from sex or drugs or a good time or a party. And we try them all, you know. If you, I don't know what your history is or where you stood as you grew up. I know there are many of you here who understand what it means to have dabbled in one thing or another or trying to find satisfaction. And what's the outcome? The outcome is that we're still left wanting, looking, and longing. It doesn't work. And then, as adults, we think that greater achievements or more acquisitions will do the trick. A better job, more money, more stuff, more prestige, more power. And uh, what happens? We just go on looking. And we look and we look and we look. Now maybe you have the wherewithal or the means to have, depending on what the measure of your aspirations are, because it differs for all of us, to have kept a constant and steady stream of these things going. And so you have this kind of inoculation against it overwhelming you, a sense of despair rising up. But the bottom line is we have to keep on going. We need to try this and we need to try that. And it never works. We just go on and on and on and on and on. You see, the fact is that as human beings, uh, we're designed for more than uh, most human beings ever find. That's a sad statement, isn't it? We are designed, and, and it, this is, it's reflected in this perpetual craving and in this endless yearning and longing that we have is the fact that we're designed for more than most human beings will ever find. We are made for something other than the majority of us ever connect with. What do I mean by that? Most people don't know Christ as Savior. We still live tragically in a world where the overwhelming majority of the people that we meet as we go down the streets or in our place of work or as we're shopping or wherever it is, we still live in a world where the overwhelming majority of people do not know Christ as Savior. And as a result, they will never, or at least until they do know Him, they will never by any other means make a connection that's going to bring satisfaction to their souls. That's going to bring to them uh, the happiness uh, that they desire. We will never quench the cravings of the soul if we can't continue to rely on possessions, people, or temporal pleasures. It's just never going to happen. You see, we're hardwired to want, but we're also hardwired to see that want, to see those cravings met in a manner that is only in the context of God. It only comes through in, in, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know that God is constantly watching. He's constantly watching to see if we're going to take him up on an opportunity to see that quench, that, that, that yearning or that craving quenched and addressed. In Psalm 53, verses 2 through 3, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, uh, this is what it says. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and that did seek God. Now just get that picture in your mind. I mean, we know that God is a spirit, and so he doesn't have the corporal condition that we have. You know, that he's not an embodied in the sense that we are. 
He's, he's a living spirit. But in your mind for a moment, imagine this, because this is the figure that's being employed. It is, there's God looking down uh, from the, the threshold of eternity, looking down from heaven, looking over the full scope of mankind and looking to see, is there anybody down there that's seeking God? Is there anybody down there that's got it right, that understands what it is that we most need as human beings? We seek all kinds of stuff. We seek some of the things that I mentioned. We seek popularity, and we seek power, and we seek prestige. And we seek money, and we seek bigger houses, and better toys, and more fun, and longer vacations, and better vacations. We seek, and we seek, and we seek. But what God is looking down to see is, who's seeking for the one thing? The one thing that really has the capacity to address the yearnings of our soul. Who's seeking for me? Paul in Romans chapter 3, quoted that same psalm. He spans a little bit on it. And he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seek after God. They are all gone out of the way, altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And what despair there is in that. Here's the world. Billions of people on this planet no matter what their ethnicity or their religious background is, millions upon millions of people who are looking and searching and seeking and pursuing and going after through the whole length of their lives, whatever it is that will fill that, so, that hole built into us. And until we find Christ, that hole never, ever can be filled. And what despair there is in that. You see, we're made for God. You know, I'm We've probably all done uh, jigsaw puzzles. And every piece is made for a specific hole. That piece only fits in that one hole. And so it's that uh, specific. Well, we have been specifically made for God. And until we enter into that relationship with Him through Christ, there's no way that we're going to find what we need. It's only in harmonious connection and in union with God that we can find the happiness, the satisfaction, the peace, the joy, the fulfillment, the contentment that we need as human beings. So what does all of that to do with that or that? Loving God and loving people. We were created to seek God. It's the way it should have been from the beginning. It's only the fall and the intervention or the interjection of sin into our experience that broke off that pattern. We were created to seek God. We were created to love God. You're never as much in the groove. You're never as truly or fully human. Actually, the truth is, we are never actually fully realized human beings until we're loving God. So what does loving God look like? How do you know? Loving God, number one, is connecting with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. There's no loving God unless you make a connection with Jesus Christ or you connect with God uh, in the person of Christ. But Jesus said, he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And John, in the beginning of his epistle, he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when you meet Jesus, you meet God. 
When you enter into a relationship by faith with Jesus Christ, you have just initiated a relationship with God Almighty. You know, I've perhaps said this to you before. I'm a a royalist. I really like the royal family. I really do. The reason I like the royal family is because in my estimation, you think, how many Americans would repudiate George Washington? I mean, I don't know if George was a good guy or a bad guy, but it's just part of American history, right? Well, I think the Queen is part of Canadian history, so I like Canadian history. I like the Queen. Well, anyway, that's the way it is. I've often thought, I would like to meet the Queen, but here's the thing. The Queen doesn't want to meet me, and I'm pretty sure that it's never going to change. There's absolutely, I hold out no hope whatsoever that one day I'm going to get a letter in the mail saying, you know what? The Queen wants to meet you. Why? Because she's the Queen, and I'm absolutely nobody, but here's the thing. I know God. And if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what would. We can have a relationship with God. We can meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's where it starts. How do you know that you love God? You've got to start with Jesus Christ. Loving God uh, equals desiring Him. There is a yearning or an appetite uh, for God that begins to uh, you know, eat us up inside. Paul said this, set your affections or your mind, your attention, your focus, or your yearning or your passion. So you take up different versions and you can find all those words. He said, set your affections on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. What was he saying there? What he's saying, among other things, he's saying, adjust your love. Make sure that the focus of your heart isn't misdirected. Make sure that it's on the Lord. Desire Him. Set your affections, your passion, your yearning on things above. The psalmist understood Uh, that loving God was about desiring Him. In Psalm 73, verse 25, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. How many of us can say that? Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth beside you. Or Psalm 42 and 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And it's not just confined to desire, as I said earlier. Genuine love also produces in us an interest in pleasing the object that it's set upon. If you love somebody, you cultivate or you develop a desire for that person. And if you love somebody, you also become very, very interested in pleasing that person. See, if you, you really love God, you'll be determinately dedicated in your desire to obey Him. But then Jesus said that second thing. We've also been created to love others. If Loving God is the highest and greatest purpose for our lives. If it's the greatest good that our souls can realize, then the second highest purpose of our lives, the second greatest good that our souls are able to realize is that we would love other people as well. Not ourselves, but that we would love God first, and then we would begin to love other people. You know, when Jesus uh, quotes that, He goes to the book of Leviticus, and I really don't have time to read it to you this morning. But if you would read Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verses 9 through 18, you find the text that that, uh, Jesus is actually quoting from when he says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. I grant you, Leviticus is typically not a very interesting book to read, but this is actually a very instructive uh, section in the book of Leviticus. Maybe one of the few that kind of comes to life in the the entirety of the book in a very special and meaningful way. And this is where Jesus gets that statement, and it's a long and extended uh, passage on what it means to love your neighbor. And what you discover is it means all kinds of practical things. 
And there is a need in our lives uh, for us if we are uh, going to truly be God's people, representing Him in the world, if we're really going to be expressing our love for Him, is for us to love others in a very practical and in demonstrative way, that we take steps to bring uh, generosity and hope and justice and kindness and express the love of God in the lives of other people. How do you love people? Well, uh, share the gospel with them. You know, give them Jesus. If you look at those passages, one is, is the Great Commission. We have been told to go into the world and preach the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians, it's Paul saying that we have been made custodians of the truth, ministers of reconciliation and the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You want to love people? Tell them about Jesus. Now, follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. You want to be treated with kindness. Love your neighbor by loving your enemies. Make peace with people that you, you, you don't think you can. Uh, pursue peace with all. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And, uh, you know, don't judge people. Judge not lest you be judged. You know, the, and, and that's just a few, the list goes on and on of the things that we could do that share, that express uh, the love of God. So our mission, loving God and loving people. You know what? Churches uh, go to great lengths to determine what is their mission. They hold conferences and debates and they break up into groups and they have dialogue and they do all kinds of stuff. You know, what is our mission? And what is that thing that we are uniquely and distinctly called to do? And that, that, that statement that uh, we use to measure everything and determine whether or not this is something we should be engaged in or we shouldn't be engaged in. Well, I, I don't say that, that I wouldn't, it's not my place to say that it's wrong, but it seems to me that Jesus has made it really pretty clear what our mission is. And I don't know that you can, you can ultimately improve on it. And I don't know that any church really intends to do it, but we just feel like in many cases we come up with some you know, artful and crafty, unique, distinct way to express it. But what it boils down to is our mission is very simple. is to love God and to love people. Those are the two greatest commandments. And then Jesus made this statement, and this brings me to this very quickly. He makes this statement at the end of, of uh, when, he, when, he, when he says, these are the two greatest commandments. First of all, love God. Second, love people. He says, everything else hangs on this. And really, that's never changed. It was true specifically of the law. He said, all the law and the prophets are ultimately an extension of these two things. No matter what law uh, that you pick out one way or another, it, it's either uh, about loving God or it's about loving people. And that's a, a, a concise summary of the entirety of the law. And you know that nothing has ever changed. Everything that we do should be an expression of one of those two things, either loving God or loving people. And when you start looking around about, uh, you know, what does loving God and loving people look like? Well, um, it looks like compassionate care one for another. If you're loving God and you're loving people, you're caring for one another. It looks like faithful proclamation. You're telling people about Jesus Christ. It looks like having great church. That every time we get together, we're determined that we're going to give God. Not that we're going to have great church in the eyes of the world. We're going to have great church in that we have worshipped the Lord the way He deserves to be worshipped. It looks like absolute and total reliance on the Holy Spirit. It looks like prayer. We want to be a house of prayer. It looks like responsible stewardship. Every asset, every blessing, every gift that God gives us, we're going to utilize it to the end that it's going to bring glory to His name and promote His gospel. It looks like intentional discipleship. That we're going to take measures to make sure that we grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and we're not just going to leave it to chance. We're going to make disciples. We're not going to stumble into disciples. It looks like incarnational activity that we are going to embody in the community the very love of God. 
We are going to be the hands and we're going to be the feet of Jesus Christ to people who are around us. There are eight of those things. And you know that if a church, and I'm, this is the kickoff to a series, I want to start preaching to you about things that every church should excel at. And a church should excel at every one of these things. And if we would excel at compassionate care and faithful proclamation and having great church and relying on the spirit and prayer and responsible stewardship intentional discipleship and incarnational activity you would not believe the kind of congregation that we would be it's kind of like this don't have as many of them around as we used to but there's still enough about it's like being an eight-cylinder vehicle right and for a car to run well it's got to be firing on all cylinders If one of these cylinders isn't firing, then we're not running right. So my uh, admonition, my encouragement to you is that we want to start looking intensively as a congregation. We're going to, over the next few weeks, at these different things and starting to evaluate how are we doing in relation to compassionate care or faithful proclamation or intentional discipleship. Are we really executing in an excellent way what it means to do these things because all of these things are a projection of these two things, of our mission, to love God and to love people. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would help us to be people who are, Lord, loving you and loving people. Lord, help us, Father, in relation to that and all of these things, Lord, to be excelling at each and every one of these things. Lord, to take time to look critically under the guidance of the Holy Spirit at ourselves and ask, are we doing compassionate care? Are we, Lord, looking after one another without drawing any lines in the sand? Father, are we faithfully proclaiming the gospel truth? Do we have a culture of evangelism? Are we incarnating, embodying the love of God in our community in practical and tangible ways? Are we, Lord, discipling? Are we helping people in a deliberate fashion to grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are we a praying church? Are we reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit? And Lord, if we come up short on any of these things, would you begin to do a work in us, inspire us to begin to improve in all of these areas? These aren't just randomly selected things. These are truths that stem from your word. We want to be biblical people. We want to be a church honoring a pattern laid down in your word. We ask you, Lord God, to work in our hearts in the, in the weeks to come. Challenge us, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Lord, amen and amen. Thanks for listening to our program today. It's my prayer that it would help you to realize a life lived for Christ is something anyone can do. If you'd like to listen to this message again, or subscribe to Christ is the Answer as a podcast and get new episodes delivered to your phone or tablet every week, visit our website at cviewfullgospel.com. Be sure to share it with a friend, and while you're there, send us a note and let us know how you've made our show part of your weekly routine. Your support is why we've been able to be here every week. Until next week, God bless, and remember, Christ is the Answer.